Good evening. In the late 1920s, a researcher by the name of Elton Mayo went to the Western Electric Company called Hawthorne Works, just outside Chicago, and proposed to conduct some studies on worker productivity. The goal of the study was to see how workers' productivity changed with physical conditions, and he was looking at changing the lighting of their work situation and seeing how their productivity changed. So he went into this company and he had two groups of people. One group, as in every experiment, is a control group where nothing was changed and they continued their work as normal. The other group of people was the experimental group and Elton Mayo would go there every morning dim the lights a little bit and take notes on how their productivity changed. And he found that as the lights were dimmed, workers' productivity increased. And so that was his conclusion, dim the lights and the workers' productivity will increase. But then he decided to change it up a little bit. He increased the lights. And then he made this startling discovery that workers' productivity increased. Well, there was something wrong with the study. Because that shouldn't happen, because it had nothing to do at that point about lights, whether it was dimmed or increased. There was something else that was confounding the study, and there was a bias that was confounding the study. And this was called the Hawthorne effect, where what was confounding his particular study was that when people realized that they were being watched, their productivity went up. In any scientific study, in order to have a valid study, there are all kinds of biases that need to be eliminated to ensure that the study is as objective as possible. If I ask you, do you like Peruvian food or Chinese food? You will give me a straight answer. You either like Peruvian chicken or whatever there is in Peruvian food, or you like Chinese fried rice or Chinese noodles or whatever there is in Chinese food. But if I ask you, do you like Chinese food or Indian food? Then there is a problem because I'm an Indian and there may be bias from the questioner. And there may be bias from you because you don't know whether I want you to say Indian or not. So with every question, there is always a bias that comes with the question. Our humanness prevents us from being completely objective and therefore we have bias. Today, we're going to look at the issue of bias in understanding the truth in a sermon entitled, First. Our text for today is Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33. Let me read it for us. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Gleevec is a drug that is used for chronic myeloid leukemia. So if, for example, you had leukemia or somebody you know has leukemia and your doctor puts you on Gleevec to treat the leukemia, 
You want to be confident that the drug that you are getting is in the market because it treats leukemia and for no other reason. You don't want that drug to be on the market or for you to take that drug because there was some other financial reason or some other social reason or some other personal reason or some academic reason for which the drug is out on the market. You want there to be no other reason other than the fact that this drug works to treat your cancer. If removing bias in any study, in any question, in the question to find truth is important in the physical universe, imagine how important it is when we ask spiritual questions that we make sure that bias is removed so that we can get to the truth. When we come to God, we come to God with bias. When we ask a question from the Bible, we ask a question with bias based on who we are. And the real question is, do we want to know the truth? Bias prevents us from getting to the truth or obeying and following the truth. DC Talk, in their song Truth from the 1998 album Supernatural, wrote these words, the truth is what we need, it is the end of mystery, the truth will set you free, the truth is out there. This evening I want to look at three kinds of bias that we have when we seek the truth, whether it is physical truth, natural truth, or more importantly, spiritual truth. Three kinds of bias. The first bias I will call the bias of temperament the bias of temperament. The bias we have that is based on the negative features of our temperament. Now, humans are divided into four different kinds of temperaments, and there are many systems that divide human behavior into temperaments, and the one that I'm going to use is one that was described by Hippocrates many years before Jesus Christ, and in this he has humans divided into four groups. The first one is a sanguine. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you how each of those four groups have a negative feature of their temperament and how we use that negative feature when we come to God asking questions or we read the Bible in the bias of temperament. So the first group of people or the first temperament is a sanguine temperament. The sanguine person is the life of the party. He is a very friendly, talkative, a good storyteller, makes everybody laugh. Everybody loves to hang around with that person. One of the biggest problems of a sanguine is lack of discipline. He is not disciplined enough to go through with a job and continue the job. He's not disciplined enough to go and persevere to finish a job. So when he reads a verse like Matthew chapter 6, verse 6, but you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who, is, who sees what is done in secret will reward you. That kind of a verse when a sanguine reads it, he just skips right over it because he can't be alone and he cannot be disciplined enough to stay in one place to pray. 
So this verse can easily be ignored by a person who has a sanguine temperament. He is exhibiting the bias of temperament. The second group of people is the choleric person. The choleric person is a natural leader. People follow him. He will get things done. But the problem of a choleric is pride and it's very hard for him to ask for forgiveness because he is a very proud person. So in Matthew chapter 5 in verse 23 and 24, it says, Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go, first be reconciled to your brother, then come back and present your offering. When a choleric reads this verse, because it doesn't fit with the natural temperament that he has, he will skip over this verse and move on. The third group of people is the melancholic. The melancholic is a genius, an intelligent person, an artistic person, a philosopher. But the problem with the melancholic is that they are very anxious. They are perfectionists but they are very worried. So a verse like Matthew 6.25, For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, for, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothing? When a melancholic reads a verse like that, he just can't bring himself to obey it because his natural inclination is to go against it. The fourth type of person is a phlegmatic person. A phlegmatic person is a listener. He is a calm person. He is not in a hurry. He is very easygoing and has dry humor. But the greatest problem with the phlegmatic is that he is lazy. And he will give any kind of weird, random excuses to avoid doing work. So a verse, as in Ephesians 5 verse 16, which says, Make the most of your time because the days are evil, will be completely ignored by a person with a phlegmatic temperament. So the bias of temperament is something that we all have because we all have one or the other of these four or combinations of more than one. And whenever there is a negative feature in that temperament, in our temperament, we will have a tendency, we will have the bias to skip over God's direct command to that particular part of the temperament. The second bias that I see as we come to ask questions to find the truth is the bias of ego. It is a bias that comes from personal identity. We all come with our presuppositions. We all know a certain amount based on who we are and based on our background. And we don't want anyone to tell us anything different than the position that I have always held or what view my family has always taken or what view my culture always recommends or my religion teaches. So the example that I have for you is in Acts chapter 10. The setting is that Jesus rose again from the dead and he went back to heaven. 
And now, just before he went back, he told his disciples to go into all the world and preach the good news about himself. And so, in this transition phase, as the disciples are preaching about Jesus, one of the main disciples, Peter, goes up into the roof of his friend's house to pray. And this is in the book of Acts chapter 10. And he goes up to the roof of his friend's house to pray. And as he's praying, remember he's a Jew. As he's praying, he sees a large sheet being lowered. And on the sheet are tons of different kinds of animals. And he hears a voice telling him, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. Being a Jew, he doesn't eat every animal. There are only certain animals that he will eat. So the command that said, Arise, Peter, kill any of these animals and eat, Peter is repulsed by it. And he says, No, I I can't do that. The vision happens again. And the same command happens, arise, Peter, kill and eat. And the third time, again it happens, and by the third time, Peter realizes that he is coming with the bias of ego. Because he's coming with the bias of his Jewish culture that has framed his identity, and he needs to get rid of that bias. And he understands that, and he realizes that God wants the gospel to go beyond the Jews. And you see in that chapter, he goes to preach to a non-Jewish centurion who then invites Jesus into his house. The example for us is that of a person from another faith. For example, a Hindu or a Muslim or a Buddhist or anybody from any other faith who listens to the gospel of Jesus Christ and rejects it simply because it is not in line with your own tradition. You know, the argument that it is not what I already believe and therefore I reject it is not a valid argument. The argument that my forefathers did it a certain way and therefore I will continue to do it this way is not a valid argument. If your grandfather was a farmer or a businessman, that doesn't mean you will continue to be a farmer or a businessman. How is it different in the religious aspect? I tell people to honestly evaluate the claims of Jesus. Whether you are a Hindu or a Muslim or a Buddhist, honestly evaluate the claims of Jesus. If you find them to be untrue, reject it. But you've got to honestly, without bias of ego, without bias of your culture or previous religion, honestly evaluate the claims of Jesus. Even Christians we have preconceived notions about certain biblical doctrine. Some of our notions are accurate, some are not. The unfortunate thing is you can always argue from the Bible and twist things out of context to say whatever we want based on the background of our belief about certain doctrines. The goal at the end of every study should be to find the truth, not to 
twist the arm of the Bible to make it say what you want it to say. Because the unfortunate thing is, God's viewpoint is often opposite our own viewpoints. So in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 17 it says, For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. God's views are opposite to man's views. So it makes no sense for us to come with our own personal views and try to fit God's views into ours. We need to come with a clean slate, a white sheet of paper, so that we can find out objective truth. In John chapter 18 and verse 36 following, there is this very sad incident that is reported. So the scene is Jesus was arrested by the Jews and brought in front of the Roman procurator who was in charge of Israel at that time. So he's from Rome and he's over Israel and making sure that there is no rioting or that sort of thing. And so Jesus is brought before Pontius Pilate and they have a back and forth question answer session. And Jesus says this in John chapter 18 and verse 36 following. Let me read it for us. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You said correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born. And for this I have come to the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And verse 38 is this sad verse. Pilate said to him, what is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews. Do you notice the sadness in this verse? Pilate asks the question, what is truth? And without waiting to hear an answer, he leaves Jesus and goes away. He could have altered the question to ask who is truth and he could have looked in the eyes of Jesus and seen truth personified. He asks what is truth, doesn't wait for the answer from Jesus and turns and walks away. Sometimes, ladies and gentlemen, we are like Pilate who asks the question and didn't wait long enough to find out. Many times our failure to find out the truth is not because of the lack of evidence, but because we don't want to know the truth. There is a proverb in my mother tongue, Malayalam, that says, you can't wake up someone who is pretending to sleep. It's not because of the lack of evidence that we reject the truth. It is because we don't want to know the truth. Maybe like Jack Nicholas said, we cannot handle the truth. The third bias that I want to bring this evening is the bias of comfort. We are hoping that God does not make us uncomfortable. This is probably one of the biggest biases in the Western world. When we ask God to lead us, when we ask God to guide us, at the same time we are hoping that God doesn't answer 
with something that will hurt us. It also doesn't help when preachers equate the blessing of God to comfort. Because that is simply not biblical. The blessing of God does not mean comfort. Let me read a few verses that talk about a difficult life. In John chapter 16 and verse 33, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. But take courage, I have overcome the world. Ephesians 6 verse 12, For a struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. The Bible doesn't say that you won't have struggle. It says that a struggle is different. It's against different enemies than what we imagine. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, it reads, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. What purpose? For you have been called to this purpose. In the few verses before this particular verse, the issue is about unjust suffering. So Peter says, For you have been called to this purpose of unjust suffering, since Christ also suffered for you unjustly, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps by suffering unjustly. The Bible essentially says that we all will suffer and will suffer unjustly. Yet somehow we have gotten the idea that a blessing from God equals comfort. And that is simply not true. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity said, In religion as in war and everything else, comfort is the one thing you cannot get by looking for it. If you look for truth, you may find comfort in the end. If you look for comfort, you will not get either comfort or truth. Only soft soap and wishful thinking to begin with, and in the end, despair. The first disciples of Jesus Christ, they walked with him for three and a half years, and they were with him while he did his miracles and he preached. They were with him while he died. They were with him when he rose again and they saw him. What was the fate of his disciples? Did they have a comfortable life? You would think that the direct disciples of Jesus would be in high positions and would be respected and well-known and doing well. But let me read for you the fate of the disciples. John preached in Jerusalem. He was bishop of Ephesus south of Izmir in western Turkey. During the reigns of either Emperor Nero or Domitian, John made it through alive, but he was banished to the island of Patmos where he was alone, and he died a natural death in Ephesus in AD 100. Peter worked among the Jews before he eventually reached Rome, where he was the first bishop. He may have been executed around AD 64 during the persecutions of Emperor Nero, or later in AD 67. He was crucified head down at his own request. St. Peter's Cathedral in Rome was built over his grave. 
Andrew preached in Achaia in southern Greece and Scythia in Ukraine and southern Russia and was crucified at Patras in Achaia in a spread eagle position on an X-shaped cross. James the Greater preached in Jerusalem and Judea during the persecutions of King Agrippa I, King of the Jews, in AD 44, he was beheaded, and that is reported in Acts chapter 12 and verses 1 and 2. Philip preached the gospel in Phrygia in west-central Turkey, and then he was hanged at Hierapolis. Bartholomew took the gospel to Armenia. He was flayed or skinned alive and then beheaded. Thomas went to Parthia. And then tradition says he came to South India. He came to my home state in India, in Kerala, and he went to a neighboring state. He was run through with the lance and he bled to death at St. Thomas Mount in Chennai, India. Matthew preached in Judea. Then he did his missionary work and was slain by the sword in Ethiopia or Persia. James the Lesser, the other James, the son of Alphaeus, first worked in Palestine, in Israel, before preaching and was beaten to death in Egypt. Jude, or Thaddeus, may have preached in Assyria and Persia before joining with Simon the Zealot and being shot to death with arrows in Persia. Simon the Zealot first preached in Egypt before joining Jude and traveling to Persia, where both of them were martyred. Matthias preached in Ethiopia, where he was stoned and then beheaded. For two years after his arrival in Rome, Paul was under house arrest. When he appealed to the emperor, he was acquitted. He remained free for three years before being rearrested and sentenced to death. In his cell, he wrote his last letter in 2 Timothy which was before his execution around the year AD 67. He was beheaded at a place now called the Tre Fontaine in Rome, and the Church of St. Paul stands over his grave. You think they were comfortable? I think the bias of comfort is the greatest hindrance to our finding and obeying and following the will of God. How do we remove bias when we come to God? Just like a scientist who does a research project, he identifies every single bias that there could be in his research project, and he eliminates every single bias from his research project so that he can find objective truth. Identify your particular bias, whether it is the bias of temperament, or ego, or comfort, or all three. Recognize it and intentionally put it aside so that you can find objective truth. The only purpose that we should be having is to seek God and find Him. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33, a verse that we read at the beginning. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Isn't it interesting that it says, seek first? Why first? What's the importance of first? When we seek him second, we come with the bias of what we seek first. Let me say it again. When we seek God second, 
we come to him with the bias of what we have seeked first. When we seek ourselves first and God second, we come to him with the bias of temperament. When we seek our culture and tradition and religion first and God second, we come to him with the bias of ego. When we seek pleasure first and God second, we come to him with the bias of comfort. Our goal should be to please God 100% with everything we have and to seek him fully. Chris Tomlin in his song, Your Heart, a song about David from the album Music Inspired by the Story, sings these words, It never was about the oil dripping from my head. I never did dream beyond the pastures I could tend. It never was about the praise, not about the street parade. I didn't really need a crowd when Goliath fell down. I never meant to wear a crown or try to bring armies down. It never was about me and who I hoped to be. But at the end of the day, I want to hear people say that my heart looks like your heart. When the world looks at me, let them agree that my heart looks like your heart. And ladies and gentlemen, the more we seek after God, the more our heart will look like the heart of God. About 2,000 years ago, Jesus came to the Garden of Gethsemane and he was coming to the end of his life. Of the three biases that I mentioned, he did not need to remove any bias of temperament because he was a perfect human being. He removed the bias of ego and that was shaped by his Jewish culture when he chose to die on a cross in the most humiliating way for a Jewish person to die. In Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13 it says, Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So according to Jewish culture, if you died on a cross, not only were you dead, you were dead and cursed. So Jesus came and took away the bias of ego by dying on the cross. He also removed the bias of comfort. He chose to die in the most painful way possible. In the most painful way known at that time. The great orator Cicero describes crucifixion as crudelissimum teterimumcu supplicium, the most cruel and horrifying death. The Roman historian Tacitus refers to it as supplicium servile, uh, a despicable death. It came from Persia and passed on to Carthage and came to the Romans who perfected the art of crucifixion and employed it as a punishment for rebels, renegade slaves, and the lowest type of criminals. And that's the death Jesus chose to die. And coming upon that tortuous death, he prays, in Luke chapter 22, verse 42, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, let your will be done. He removed the bias of comfort. In November 2014, Carissa Bugle from Parker, Colorado, went for what was a routine procedure to the hospital. She and her husband had two children already, but they were excited for their 
third, their baby boy, to be born. But when she got to the hospital, she discovered that she had acquired a rare condition that affects one in 100,000 deliveries. She had amniotic fluid embolism, where the fluid surrounding the baby in the womb escaped into the mother's bloodstream and spread to all her organs, shutting down all her organs, and there is no way to prevent it. Just before Dr. Kelly Giraud discovered that Carissa had amniotic fluid embolism, doctors noticed that the baby's heartbeat was starting to dip. So the baby's life was at risk. So the doctor gave Carissa two options. She had to choose between a C-section with anesthesia. That would save the baby's life, but it would kill her. Or she would have to choose a C-section without anesthesia, which would save her, but would kill the baby. She chose with anesthesia. So the doctors got the baby out quickly. Carissa asked the doctor how much her baby boy, Declan, weighed, and then she was gone. Her husband asked what was a rhetorical question. How do I explain when my baby boy grows up and asks, where's mommy? How do I explain to him that his mommy died so that he could live. Ladies and gentlemen, that is exactly what Jesus did 2,000 years ago. So that you and I could be saved, Jesus died in our place. I'm going to give the opportunity for two groups of people to respond to this sermon. If there is anybody here who's never asked Jesus into your life, for whatever reason, maybe it was the bias of temperament. You had your own personal temperamental reasons why you've never asked Jesus. Or maybe it was a bias of ego. It was your previous religion or your previous culture or family situation that prevented you from asking Jesus into your life. Or maybe it is the bias of comfort. The truth will hurt and you did not want that. Whatever the reason, if there's anybody who's never invited Jesus into your life, I'm going to pray a prayer, and if it is something that you want to pray, that you mean from the bottom of your heart, you can pray this prayer after me, and Jesus will answer you. The second group of people that I want to give the chance to respond to the sermon is anyone who has come to God with any kind of bias. It may be one of these three biases or any other kind of bias. If there's anybody here who comes to God with any bias and seeks him but does not seek him first, you can also pray with me and decide today to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Those who want to invite Jesus into your life, you can pray a prayer like this. Lord Jesus, Thank you for your life. Thank you for your death. Thank you for choosing a cruel and a cursed way to die. Thank you for dying in my place. Thank you for dying so that I could live. 
And thank you above all that you rose up again on the third day. Thank you for the promise of eternal life. I ask you to come into my life and make me complete. Help me to follow you for the rest of my life. Help me to seek you fully without any bias. Remove the bias of temperament. Remove the bias of ego. Remove the bias of comfort that so easily enslaves me. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.